The Old Testament Bible reading this morning comes from Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like the weaned child that is with me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore. And the New Testament reading this morning is from Matthew 18, verses 1 to 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child, whom he put among them, and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. This is the word of the Lord. One of the most important interactions between the disciples and Jesus is uh, recorded in uh, the Gospels, in particular uh, Luke chapter 11, uh, when they ask Jesus to teach them to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. Uh, I just think it's a pretty interesting moment. Uh, Presumably these uh, Jewish men had prayed all their lives, actually. They'd been taught from their childhood to pray. They'd been to the synagogue, if, if not the temple itself, on the great festivals. They, they'd prayed, and yet they say to Jesus, teach us to pray. And what uh, Jesus says next has changed the course of history, uh, guided the lives of literally billions of people into an engagement with God that has sustained and enriched them uh, through what must be Uh, the most prayed prayer in all the world as we just prayed ourselves, the Lord's Prayer. And the fact that the disciples ask to be taught to pray itself teaches us at least two things. On the one hand, um, despite what we sometimes fear, it shows us that prayer is not natural to us in the same way that falling off a bike is pretty natural to us. It's something which we need to be schooled in, instructed about its nature and centre, its boundaries and experience. Or, in other words, if you don't find prayer easy and second nature, well, you're onto something. And at the same time, um, Jesus' answer also shows us something crucial, uh, namely that prayer can be taught and can be learned. It is not beyond any of us to have a deep, rich, praying life that is profoundly engaged with God in that crucial part of our lives which is away from the eyes of other people, seen only by the God who knows the secrets of our hearts. It's one of my kind of life hopes and dreams and prayers that I become a richer and richer, deeper and deeper person in prayer as I get older and older. In a sense, this sermon series to begin a new year is us as a church asking Jesus to teach us to pray. We've prayed. Some of us, we've prayed all our lives. And yet we come again to Jesus with the same hope and confidence that as he loved those 
first disciples and taught them, so he loves us and will teach us. Our topics are pretty plain sounding uh, today. Messy prayer. I'll say a little more about that, of course, in a moment. Trusting prayer, asking prayer, storying prayer, working prayer. But underneath the simplicity of the topics is something I suspect that we all yearn for. And not just us, people around us. It's been one of the interesting things about 2020 was that survey by the McCrindle Research Company that found that more people were praying more often this year, whether Christian or not. We all want a deep, rich, spiritual life of communion and connection with God. Jesus, teach us to pray. And so we're going to start this journey at the beginning with the fundamental structure to prayer between the Father and his children and uh, see that prayer need never be not messy. We're going to open up under three headings. Who is God to us? Who are we to God? And the difference that makes in prayer. So first then, who is God to us? Uh, I'd suggest that there's never been a context in which praying makes less sense than modern Western culture. As a culture, we have turned decisively away from ultimate origins and ultimate destiny as guiding principles in life. We've turned inwards and downwards to proximate causes and outcomes. Um, Our culture is full of atoms hitting atoms, physics and chemistry and biology and economics and psychology. These are the spiritual currencies of our age. Although, of course, as soon as you say that, you realise that they're not even close to being up to the task. They're all about means. They cannot be about ends. The Christian conviction is that there is an ultimate origin and an ultimate destiny. There is a beginning and an end that holds in place our middle time in a way that makes sense and has dignity. That beginning and end is the living and true God who is both personal and infinite. Because it's only situated in that conviction that prayer makes any real sense at all. As scripture bears witness to this infinite personal nature of God, the living and true loving Lord of all the earth again and again. Uh, we see it in perhaps the best known of all uh, the poems, the Psalms. In scripture, the Lord is my shepherd. Both together, the Lord, Yahweh, the one uh, whose name is from the verb to be, who has existence in and from himself. The I am, I am who I am, I will be who I'll be, are dependent upon no one and upon nothing before all time and evermore. The Lord, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Transcendent. And it is precisely this one who is my shepherd. Shepherd, the one who tenderly cares, protects and guards and guides, even at cost and sacrifice to himself. My shepherd, intensely personal. Uh, The same almost unbearable tension is held in Isaiah 57. Uh, God dwells in the high and holy place and also with those who are contrite 
and broken of heart. Or, as we've just seen in the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. He's the high and lofty one who inhabits heaven, the one who's Lord of heaven and earth, and at the same time is our Father, the one who gives and sustains life, who knows and loves with deep and driving passion, the one who is utterly and viscerally involved. That is who God is to us, our Father in heaven. In practice, however, so often we find ourselves drifting into what you might call functional deism. And this is one of the kind of profound root causes of why we don't pray as we could or should. Our our pattern of prayer, or perhaps, and I speak of myself here more accurately, of relative prayerlessness, reveals that we believe that either God is limited and not really therefore worth praying to or more likely not really personal, not actually interested and responsive to our prayers. So here's the point, right? We don't pray much because not much praying is the natural outcome of our understanding of how the world really is and who God really is in relation to it. We don't pray much when we imbibe the spirit of our age. For the functional deist, what you need to make life work is time and money and skill and knowledge because the combination of those things is power in this world. Get more of them, you'll do better. It's just as simple as that. Uh, Tim Keller, in uh, his book on prayer, uh, puts it bluntly. He says, to fail to pray then is not to merely break some religious rule, like you're supposed to do some stuff and one of them is praying, so just make sure you do it. No, no, to fail to pray then is not to merely break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. Or to put it another way, the key to revived and renewed prayer life is not so much discipline and focus and resolve, although we'll get into all of that. It's not so much tools and techniques, although we'll have some tools and techniques for you. But it's a deepened vision of who God is. A deepened vision bedded in the reality of our lives of who God actually is our Father in heaven. Which leads to the second side of it, who we are to God. If our Father in heaven captures the essence of who God is to us, then it makes sense that the essence of who we are to God is his children. Uh, That's why our prayer as a church is framed as it is, uh, to grow more and more as God's fully devoted children. Children, being a child of God, Uh, is the deepest, truest, and most foundational way to speak of ourselves in relation to God. Uh, There is a sense in which uh, all people are God's offspring, uh, according to Paul in Acts 17, quoting an ancient poet. Uh, But that's not what's on view here. For, For Christians, 
We are children of God specifically because of the mysterious way of grace. That we've come to share in some way the same by adoption, the same relationship that God the Son has with God the Father. Um, We are in Christ, says the Apostle Paul again and again. We believe into the Son, says Jesus again and again. And in Jesus, we are more than offspring, we are children. Or as the the Apostle John put it, which is part of our collect this morning, uh, that remarkable statement in 1 John chapter 3, see what manner of love the Father has given to us. Exactly what is the love of God for you? What is its height and breadth and length? And depth, what is its texture and fundamental reality? It's this, namely, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Again and again, Jesus uses this fundamental reality to teach us about what the Christian life is like, both as it begins and as it continues, um, at its smallest and at its greatest. And so in Matthew chapter 18, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child, whom he put among them and said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the beginning. And whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now notice that um, this childlikeness is not an abstract thing. I mean, it's parsed out in particular ways. Uh, Jesus talks about it, uh, whoever becomes humble like this child. Here, humble is not in the sense of uh, humility, uh, namely realising that, that, that you know, others are better than me and, and that's sort of the virtue of humility. I think this is Jesus using humble in the sense of the, the way we might speak about a, a, a humble contribution. That is a thing which is just small. A thing which is just small. I think another way to put that is to use the term dependent. What is to be a child, what Jesus is talking about being a child here, revolves around the reality of dependence. So, for example, whenever Jesus speaks about his relationship with his heavenly father, he speaks of it in terms of dependence. The son can do nothing of his own accord, he says. I do nothing of my own. I do nothing on my own authority. I just speak as the father has taught me. The father who sent me has himself given me what to say and what to speak. His experience of walking with the Father as a child is one of complete dependence. In other words, when Jesus tells us to become like little children, he isn't telling us to do anything he isn't doing himself. Here's a thought for you. I mean, just Jesus is without question the most dependent human being who ever lived. It's an astonishing realisation, isn't it? Jesus is 
the most dependent on the Father that there could ever be. He knows that the life he has, he has in the Father, and so he prays. He prays. And he prays. In other words, as he tells us that apart from me you can do nothing, he's opening up to us the reality that life is lived in dependence upon this heavenly Father. As his children. He's not asking us to work up some spiritual energy. He calls us to recognise that like all children, we don't have the resources to do life independently. We are dependent. We are humble little things. Weak and feeble and needy. Um, put that on a CV next time you apply for a job, hey? Ah, my name's Andrew. I'm weak and feeble and needy. Employ me. There are a few things less palatable to us than the prospect of this kind of childlikeness at the centre of our being. We, above all things, prize the opposite of dependence and incompetence and neediness. We prize competence and strength and intellect and wealth. And here's the problem. As you find ways to make life work with those resources, a terrible spiritual acid begins to eat away at your soul. You become subtly more and more convinced that you can actually do life without God. After all, there's a number of people out there that seem to make it work, right? And when that's the case, praying seems nice, but unnecessary. Money, say, can do what prayer does, but it's quicker and less time-consuming. Our independence, our trust in ourselves, our competence, our talent, our capacities have the effect of making us structurally independent of God. Now, it only takes a moment's reflection to know that our sense of competence is at one level, perhaps, uh, justified, yes, uh, you might do your job well, but in a far deeper way, it's, it is just a delusion. Even physically, we are incredibly vulnerable and feeble, let alone emotionally and morally and spiritually. I mean, do you really want to kind of get into the detail of your competence, actually, at those levels? We are exactly like children. Jesus was not wrong. We're exactly like children whose greatest need is for a father in heaven. And as we more and more grasp in our hearts the, the truth, the reality about ourselves and the truth and reality about our heavenly father, so prayer will make more and more sense. And in particular, we will pray messy. Messy prayer, point three, is how Paul Miller describes it in his book, A Praying Life, which is something of a guide to us in this series. Uh, he depicts it like this, quote, let's do a quick analysis on how children ask. Okay, how do children ask? What do they ask for? Everything and anything. If they hear about Disneyland, they want to go there tomorrow. 
How often the little children ask, repeatedly, over and over again. They wear us out. Sometimes we're given just to shut them up. How do children ask? Without guile, they just say what is on their minds. They have no awareness of what is appropriate or inappropriate. And Jesus tells us to watch little children. It's quite important that the word little is part of this. It's not just children in sort of a broad sense. It's quite specifically little children. Jesus tells us to watch little children if we want to learn how to ask in prayer. After introducing the idea of bold asking in the Sermon on the Mount, ask and it will be given to you, uh, Jesus tells us why we can boldly ask. Which one of you, if your son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or if you ask for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Messy prayer. Just ask like a little child. Actually, I don't have little children anymore. I have a cat. And that cat knows how to ask for food in a way that is really getting on my goat at the moment. <laughs> so, so I'm going I'm to take this and turn it into... Well, no, that won't quite work. But you, you see the point. Messy prayer. Uh, Millie uses the example of balloons underwater. Uh, I'm sure we all know the experience of sitting down to pray and setting out to follow a model of prayer, perhaps uh, something like the ACTS model. We've talked about that from time to time. A-C-T-S, adoration, worship of God, confession of sins, C, thanksgiving, T, and supplication, S. A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And you're full of good intentions and you've, you've actually gotten up and you're there and you're ready to pray and you're in your right chair and it's all going and then at least four seconds into your prayer time, your mind wanders off in a dozen different directions. And the problems of the day push out our well-intentioned uh, resolve to be spiritual. And, and then you catch yourself and you give yourself a spiritual kick in the pants and try again. But, but life crowds prayer out. It's almost as if the different... Um, emotions that we're feeling, the problems, the, the tasks of the day, the, the memories and experiences are like balloons, helium balloons, and we try and push them down and focus on praying, but they just come up again. And so Miller says, pray like a child. Instead of ignoring the balloons, start with them. Just pray like a child would. Pray whatever's forefront on your mind, whether it's how you're feeling or the problems that you're facing or the day's chores, just pray messy, he says. And there's something, I think, profoundly insightful about that. We're children. Just underneath the surface of our lives is a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, Miller concludes... So instead of being frozen by your self-preoccupation, it's such an interesting observation, isn't it? Instead of being frozen by your self-preoccupation, thinking, oh, I should, I've got, I, should, I must, there are several much more important things to pray about. He says, talk with God about your worries. Tell him where you are weary. If you don't begin with where you are, 
then where you are will sneak in the back door and your mind will wander to where you are weary. We're often so busy and overwhelmed that when we slow down to pray, we don't know where our hearts are and so we don't know what troubles us and so oddly enough, we might have to worry before we pray. That's a very interesting observation, don't you think? We're so often busy and overwhelmed that when we slow down to pray, we don't really quite know where our hearts are or what troubles us. And so unless you allow that to all happen as you pray, you'll pray something other than what's truest and realest about you in your heart at that time. You'll pray fake. You'll pray fake. And Miller says, oddly enough, we might have to worry before we pray, then our prayers will make sense. They will be about our real lives. Your heart could be, and often is, askew. That's okay. You have to begin with what is real. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. And all of us qualify. And Miller concludes, the very things we try to get rid of, our weariness, our distractedness, our messiness, are what get us in the front door in the first place. I remember one of the very uh, first books I read as a Christian uh, back in 1983. Uh, it was a classic by a Norwegian Lutheran pastor. His name's Ole Hallesby. Uh, o, o. Hallesby uh, was the sort of the, how we knew him. Uh, the book is simply called Prayer. And he described how Mary's request to Jesus at the wedding of Cana. Remember, um, they just say, they have no wine. And Hallesby says, that is a perfect description of prayer. That's it. Simply their neediness brought to God in this feeble childlike confidence in his provision. And messy prayer is bringing your helplessness to Jesus. Uh, the point is that this is, of course, how the gospel works as well. And uh, again, this is a very important thing to see. That there's nothing sort of... It's not that there's the gospel and then there's this thing that once you get going in the Christian life, you add to the gospel called a spiritual life or prayer. Listen again to Miller. The gospel, God's free gift of grace in Jesus, only works when we realise we don't have it all together. Right, that's, the, the gospel is for sinners, right? And he says the same is true for prayer. The very thing we're allergic to, our helplessness, is what makes prayer work. It works because we are helpless. We can't do life on our own. Prayer mirrors the gospel. Prayer mirrors the gospel. In the gospel, the Father takes us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of salvation. In prayer, the Father receives us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of help. We look at the inadequacy of our praying and give up, thinking something is wrong with us. God looks at the adequacy of his Son and delights in our sloppy, meandering prayers. And of course, you can put it around the other way, right? The challenge of this truth that we are children of the Heavenly Father is that if we find ourselves not praying much, 
then it quite probably indicates that we're confident that time and money and talent are just all we need in life. We'll always be a bit too tired, and a bit too busy, a bit too over-organised to pray. It's as we more and more, like Jesus, realise that actually I can't do life myself. It will beat me. Then I will pray. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And um, it is a beautiful, physical, enacted gift that Jesus gave to us. It enacts the gospel And because prayer has the same structure as the gospel, the Lord's Supper is also a perfect picture of prayer. Uh, We're going to receive with helpless, open hands, in this case, out of a pair of tongs for crying out loud, that which marks the body and blood of Jesus Christ given for us. We bring nothing. We have nothing to bring. Just our emptiness and our neediness. And in Jesus Christ, God's grace always meets us there. There. And we know that because of his body and blood, our heavenly Father, his our messy, childlike prayer with delight. Lord, teach us to pray.